Good morning, everyone. Hopefully you had a thankful Thanksgiving. It's great to see all of you here. Uh, let's begin with a word of prayer. <clears throat> Our dear Heavenly Father, we praise you for this wonderful time of year. We praise you for the Christmas season and the joy and the, the hope and the peace and the love uh, that, that we think about, that we meditate upon. <clears throat> and so, Lord, we ask today that your great grace would be with us. Open our hearts to your truth. May you help us to see wondrous things in your word. And we offer up this time to you now. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> well, today we begin a four-part Advent series, uh, which will continue through the Sunday before Christmas, focusing on the Advent themes of hope, represented by the lighting of the first candle here this morning, and then peace, joy, and love. Now, the word Advent refers to an arrival or an appearance. And so this morning, we're going to be looking at Isaiah's prophecy of a coming Messiah here in Isaiah chapter 9, where he likens the Messiah's advent to a light shining into the midst of darkness. In other words, the light of God's hope shining into a world of spiritual darkness. And I think we can all relate to the contrast between light and darkness. Uh, perhaps you've been in a situation where you've desperately hoped for a light to shine. Uh, think, for example, of a, of a deer hunter. It's appropriate for this time of year. Uh, hunting, perhaps, in an unfamiliar area, and he stays out in the woods a little later in the afternoon than he should. As the sun goes down and he begins to seek to make his way out of the woods, he finds that he's not sure where he is. As it really gets dark, fear begins to rise in his heart as he realizes that he's lost and he can't see where he's going. And then think of the hope that would arise within him if he suddenly saw a flashlight coming toward him or a, a pair of headlights driving down the road toward him. What, what a relief he would feel. Uh, what hope would rise in his heart. Well, in a much greater and more significant way, infinitely so, the advent of the Messiah would be like that. Spiritual light shining into the pitch black darkness of a sinful world. And one of the lessons we learn here, <clears throat> and that the coming of our Messiah, Jesus, proves, is that light always, always, always overcomes darkness. Always. <clears throat> a great encouragement for us as we live in the midst of increasing darkness here in 21st century America. Well, as Isaiah wrote this prophecy given to him by God, uh, the nation of Israel was engulfed in gloom and despair. Somebody has said ultimately the world's gloom and despair is linked to spiritual darkness. And that was certainly the case in Israel during Isaiah's time. In chapter 8, he warns of a coming Assyrian invasion, which would be part of God's judgment upon them as a result of their sinful rebellion against him. Isaiah describes the spiritual darkness in Israel during that time in chapter 8, in verses 21 and 22. It says there, they will wander through the land dejected and hungry. When they are famished, they will become enraged, and looking upward will curse their king and their God. They will look toward the earth and see only distress, darkness, and the gloom of affliction, and they will be driven into thick darkness. 
Sounds pretty hopeless, doesn't it? And yet the spiritual darkness would continue for the most part in the nation of Israel, culminating in a 400-year period just prior to the New Testament period where there was no prophetic revelation from God at all. Heaven was silent for centuries, truly a time of spiritual gloom and despair for the children of Israel. But it was against this dark backdrop and into the spiritual gloom of first century Israel that the light would begin to shine, just like the horizon before a beautiful sunrise. Uh, There are parts of our world uh, up near the Arctic Circle where uh, they don't see the sun for weeks during uh, the winter. You can imagine how difficult that must be to not see the sun shining uh, for weeks at a time. And then think of the joy that they must feel as they see the sun arise over the horizon for the first time uh, in several weeks. And so the coming of the Lord Jesus would be like that, a hope for the children of Israel and ultimately for us as well. Well, we read here in Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 1, as Lindsay read it so well for us earlier, nevertheless, the gloom of the distressed land will not be like that of the former times when he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the future he will bring honor to the way of the sea, to the land east of the Jordan, and to Galilee of the nations. Now, it was northern Israel, and particularly the northern regions of Zebulun and Naphtali, that had previously experienced the brunt of foreign invasions. That's the part of Israel that would get hit first, particularly the Assyrians as they would invade uh, from the north. But now it would be this region, the region of Galilee, which would be the future recipient of unspeakable glory, unspeakable honor, because this would be the region where the coming Messiah would grow up, make his home, and carry out most of his ministry in the despised region known as Galilee. And so future glory would come to the region of Israel that Isaiah described as distressed. And Isaiah beautifully portrays it here in this way, in verse 2 of Isaiah 9. It says, The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. A light has dawned on those living in the land of darkness. And so Isaiah describes a day where the dawn would arrive, a glorious new morning for the children of Israel and eventually for the entire world. These people who were living their lives stumbling around in the spiritual darkness of sin and compromise, along with the crushing burden of legalistic Judaism that afflicted those first century believers, would see a great light. And that light, of course, would be the Messiah, our Lord Jesus Christ. With the birth of Jesus, the light began to shine into first century Israel, who again had experienced 400 years of silence from God, 400 years of spiritual darkness. And this idea of a light beginning to shine is, a very, is very prevalent throughout the early chapters of the Gospel of Luke. Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, prophesies of it in Luke chapter 1, verses 78 and 79. It says there, because of our God's merciful compassion, 
the dawn from on high will visit us to shine on those who live in darkness and the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. And then this is beautifully illustrated just prior to the angelic announcement of the Messiah's birth to the shepherds in Luke chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. We read there, In the same region, shepherds were staying out in the fields and keeping watch at night over their flock. Then an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. Luke describes here the Shekinah glory of God, the same glory that would appear in the Old Testament tabernacle and in the Old Testament temple. New Testament commentator R.C.H. Lenski describes it as a beaming radiance. And this beaming radiance literally lit up the dark Galilean landscape. Think of that. It was dark, all of a sudden, boom, the brightness of day. And that only illustrates for us what was happening in a spiritual sense in Israel with the advent of the Messiah, where Jesus, the light of love, the light of truth, the light of holiness, and the light of life began to shine into a world filled with hatred and falsehood and sin and death. A world very much like our own, wasn't it? John in his gospel describes Jesus in John chapter 1 and verse 5 as that light which shines in the darkness and yet the darkness did not overcome it. Jesus' advent brings us hope because light always prevails over darkness and it always will. Well, how does Isaiah reveal this coming Messiah, the light shining into the spiritual darkness? Well, we read of that beginning in verse 6. <clears throat> Isaiah writes, For a child will be born for us, a son will be given to us, and the government will be on his shoulders. Isaiah's long-awaited Messiah would arrive as a child, born of a virgin, conceived of the Holy Spirit, coming into a world that he made, with an animal stable as his first dwelling place and with an animal feeding trough as his first crib. The almighty creator of the universe came into this world, again, an animal stable being his first dwelling place, and an animal feeding trough his first crib. Isaiah also prophesied of the child who would be Israel's Messiah. In Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 14, where he refers to him as Emmanuel, which, as most of you know, means God with us. So think of that. God became man and dwelt among us. This is the miracle of the incarnation. This is the great miracle of Christmas, that God the Son came into this world as a child born under the most humble of circumstances. And this is the great miracle that we're going to be celebrating over the next month. So let this wonderful truth fuel your hope. Make sure that this remains your focus. As you put up your Christmas lights and you see the, the beautiful lights downtown and elsewhere, remember Jesus. Remember Jesus, the Messiah, and how his light 
shines into the midst of spiritual darkness. Focus on and rejoice in him. And don't let the superficial enticements of the world rob you of your hope, of your joy, and of your peace during this Christmas season. Keep your eyes upon Jesus. Well, not only would the prophesied Messiah be a child, he would also be a son. It says there, a son will be given to us. And not only a son, but the very son of God. And notice the distinction that is drawn here between a child is born and a son is given. What's so significant about that? Well, Jesus was born of the virgin in Bethlehem, but this was not his origin. His origin was heaven. Paul, in his letter to the Galatians, draws the same distinction when he writes, when the time came to completion, that would be the time of the advent, God sent his son, we would say from heaven, born of a woman, of course, referring to, the, to Jesus' virgin birth to Mary. And so the birth of Jesus was truly a gift from heaven to a, a, a sinful, dark, cursed world, a light shining into the darkness. Christ Jesus, our hope, as the New Testament says. But not only would Israel's Messiah, our Savior, be a child and a son, he would also be a king. We read here in our passage in verse 6, and the government will be on his shoulders. In other words, the authority of the kingdom of God rested upon the shoulders of a child born in Bethlehem. Now, the children of Israel were looking for a Messiah, all right. They were looking for a king, but they were looking for a king who would give them victory over their physical enemies and would restore them to the glory days of David and Solomon. But that is not the kind of kingdom Jesus, our king, presides over. Jesus' kingdom is a spiritual kingdom. As he said, my kingdom is not of this world. And as we're going to see in verse 7, it is a universal kingdom and an eternal kingdom where our Lord Jesus Christ rules and reigns. As Jesus said so clearly in the Great Commission, Matthew 28, 18, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. All authority. So how does one gain entrance into this kingdom? How can I become or you become a subject in this kingdom? Well, it's through faith in Jesus. Jesus said you must be born again. As he put it in John 3, we cannot even see or perceive the kingdom, let alone enter it, unless we're born again. But if you have been born again, then you are a child of God and a royal subject of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we owe him who gave his life for us obedience and absolute loyalty as his royal subjects, not to earn his favor, but because of what he's already accomplished on our behalf. So let's follow the example of the Magi who humbly and reverently bowed before the infant king as they presented their gifts to him of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. That should always be our attitude before Jesus, bowing before him in humble reverence. After all, he is worthy of our worship. He is worthy of our praise. 
Well, what more does Isaiah reveal to us here about this prophesied Messiah? Well, we read in the rest of verse 6. It says, He will be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. Now, when that Isaiah says he will be named, he isn't saying that these are designated names of Jesus so much as they reveal more about who he is and some of his characteristics. First of all, Isaiah says he will be named Wonderful Counselor. The word wonderful here speaks of something or someone miraculous, truly wondrous. And the root word wonder here was a word used back in Exodus to describe the wonders or the miracles that God performed in Egypt in delivering the children of Israel from Egyptian bondage. So the plagues that God sent against Egypt, they were wonders. The parting of the Red Sea was perhaps the greatest wonder or the greatest miracle that occurred during that time of the deliverance of the children of Israel. This was truly a wonder. And so Isaiah is saying here that their future Messiah would be a wonder. He surpasses our ability to fully comprehend him. And that should be one of the reasons why we bow down before him in worship. He is wondrous. He's beyond our ability to fully comprehend him. He is truly miraculous. But it says here that he will be named Wonderful Counselor, which means that Jesus is wisdom personified. And part of the wonder of Jesus was his infinite wisdom. Time and time and time again, He confounded the learned Jewish religious leaders with his great wisdom. And people were astounded at him as he taught and as he instructed and as he responded to these Jewish religious leaders. After he read from the scroll of the prophet Isaiah in his hometown of Nazareth, we read in Luke chapter uh, 4, verses 20 uh, through 22, he then rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fixed on him. Think of that. The drama there is the eyes of everyone was fixed on Jesus. He began by saying to them, Today, as you listen, this scripture has been fulfilled. They were all speaking well of him and were amazed by the gracious words that, that came from his mouth that literally flowed out of his mouth. Yet they said, Isn't this Joseph's son? Where did this guy get this wisdom from? How does he continually confound our learned religious leaders? They were amazed. Isn't this Joseph's kid? Where did he get all this wisdom? The people were in awe of Jesus. His words of wisdom astounded them. So are you seeking guidance and direction? Run to Jesus, the wonderful counselor. Do you need wisdom in making a decision? Yes, sometimes we need to go to our Christian friends and seek counsel. Sometimes we need to go to spiritual leaders to seek wisdom. But ultimately, we need to run to Jesus and run to his word because he is the wonderful counselor. And then secondly, it says here, he will be named Mighty God. And here, in the second name for the coming Messiah, we we find a clear declaration of the deity of Jesus Christ. The fact that he is God. 
In Isaiah's earlier reference to the future Messiah as a child, he emphasized his humanity, right? But here, Isaiah emphasizes his deity, fully God and fully man. John put it this way in John chapter 1, verse 1, and then verse 14. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, speaking, of course, of our Lord Jesus Christ, and the Word became flesh, God became man, and dwelt among us. Emmanuel, God with us. So this future Messiah will be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, and then Everlasting Father, which can be somewhat tricky. You know, how can the Son also be the Father? Well, it's not, of course, that he is the Father, but that he embodies the qualities of a Father perfectly. Jesus said during his earthly ministry, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And so Jesus embodied the qualities of the Father perfectly. And what does a father do? Well, he loves his family. He protects his family. He guides his family. He gives them wisdom. And so in that sense, Jesus is everlasting or eternal father. And then finally, Isaiah reveals the future Messiah here as prince of peace. As the great chorus of angels sang on the night of Jesus' birth, glory to God in the highest heaven and peace on earth to people he favors. Now, as we mentioned earlier, the Jews were seeking and waiting for a Messiah who would return them to the glory days of David and Solomon, giving them political and military victory again. But Jesus, the Prince of Peace, had come to deal actually with the root cause of strife and conflict in the world, and that, of course, is sin. So the peace the Messiah would come to provide would be peace with God. Since our sin had put us at enmity with God, having separated us from him. And so the Prince of Peace, Jesus Christ, would go to the cross and reconcile lost sinners to his Father through his atoning death on the cross so that all who place their faith in him would receive the forgiveness of their sins, thus peace with God and the gift of eternal life. So we seek peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ in order that we can experience the peace of God as Christians in this life and the eternal peace, the Prince of Peace, will usher in at his second advent. And so Jesus Christ is called Prince of Peace. Well, finally, Isaiah reveals to us here in verse 7 that the coming Messiah would not only be a king, but he would be an eternal king. An eternal king. It says in verse 7 here, the dominion will be vast and its prosperity will never end. He will reign on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish and sustain it with justice and righteousness from now on and forever. The zeal of the Lord of armies will accomplish this. Isaiah reveals here that the future Messiah would reign over a glorious eternal kingdom. And he would govern and sustain this kingdom in righteousness and justice forever. And doesn't that sound appealing in this world where we see governments that are so unrighteous and so unjust? How much we look forward to that 
an eternal kingdom governed in righteousness and justice. And even now, the crucified, risen, and ascended Christ is seated in majesty, in royal majesty, at the right hand of his Father in heaven. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 20 and 21, it says, God exercised this power in Christ by raising him from the dead and seating him at his right hand in the heavens, far above every ruler, every authority, every power, every dominion, and every title given not only in this age, but also in the one to come. So don't worry about what you see happening in the world. Don't worry about these negative things that you hear on the nightly news or that you read on Facebook or whatever, because our eternal King Jesus rules and reigns in absolute righteousness, absolute justice, absolute wisdom, and absolute truth, and he always will. So, as you put the lights on your tree this year, and as you view all of the beautiful Christmas displays in your homes, your neighborhoods, and your communities, let it all remind you of the one whose light shone into the darkness of this world on that first Christmas night, Jesus Christ, the hope of the world. And it is the light of the gospel that first shone into the darkness of our sinful hearts that resulted in our being rescued from the kingdom of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of God's dear Son. In other words, if you're in Christ, you've been transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. Remember the spiritual darkness you were rescued from and that you used to walk in? I remember I lament over the sins of my past before I came to Christ. And yet the Lord Jesus Christ in his mercy delivered me from the dominion of darkness into the kingdom of the son of his love. Praise the Lord. If you are in Christ, you are not in the realm of darkness anymore. You have been delivered from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. And so the Bible says we are children of light. So let's walk and live as children of light. Shining the light of hope, the light of truth, the light of the gospel into the spiritual darkness of this world, representing our glorious King well. Love your neighbors, shining your light into this world. Love your neighbor as yourself, and even love your enemies. That's what Jesus commands us to do. Let your light shine by performing acts of mercy and kindness. Help people out. Seek how you can be a vessel of mercy. Encourage somebody. Give somebody a call. Help someone shovel their sidewalk. Whatever it is, but do it all in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let your light shine. Let your light shine into a culture increasingly engulfed in spiritual darkness and don't be intimidated by the darkness. Remember, light will always, always, always triumph over darkness. Remember, we are servants and we are ambassadors of a great king. And it is this king uh, whose light began to shine in the world on that night in Bethlehem. So let's serve our king, our, our glorious king, walking 
in the light. Well, please join me as we close this message in prayer.